What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. The new Nova Scotia report is calling for police to be secondary in emergency response. Joining us to discuss is Elle Jones, poet, journalist, academic, and abolitionist who lives in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Elle was the lead author of the 2022 report, Defunding the Police, Defining the Way Forward for Halifax. She was also Halifax's Poet Laureate from 2013 to 2015. Good morning, Elle. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. All right, Elle, I'm bad at geography, and, and I'm just going to assume there are other listeners in the world that are too. Help us picture where Halifax, Nova Scotia is located at in so-called Canada. So Halifax is on the east coast of Canada. We're kind of like above Maine and Boston, I guess. Um, and it's actually, this is relevant to this conversation because historically it's actually the site of the first black settlement in North America, and is a place where many um, black loyalists, black refugees from the War of the eighteen of eighteen twelve, um, also came up to seek freedom. So we are we have a four hundred year old community, and particularly um, many many generations of indigenous black people as well. And I would guess then a, a lingering revolutionary spirit that drives some of the work that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, it's also the site of the first so called race riots in North America, which were in Shelburne. Um, where the white loyalists uh, burned down and rioted on black people for 10 days, uh, sparked by a black preacher, David George, who was preaching to white people as well. So this sets some of the context of white supremacy and violence in this province, which we sometimes call the deep south of Canada or the Mississippi of the north. Wow. Um that's actually a really good segue, L, to my next question, and that's about what policing looks like in Halifax. Like, how is it similar or different from policing that those of us in the U.S. would understand? And inside of your answer, tug a little bit more at that thread of the racial context of those conversations for Black yes, and Indigenous the, folks. One of the challenges of being Canadian is there's often a vision that racism doesn't exist here or it doesn't exist yeah. in the same way that it exists in the United States. And people in Canada believe that and people in the U.S. believe that. So people in the U.S. will often be like, oh, I'd love to go to Canada. Um, and while it's true we don't have the same history, part of the reason why we don't have, for example, um, perhaps the same kind of history of segregation, but we do have a history of segregation. My province, Nova Scotia, black people are buried separately in cemeteries um, up until the 1960s. We had segregating school until the 1950s um, across Canada. Um, the very famous case of a woman named Viola Desmond, who's now on our $10 bill, who nine years before Rosa Parks was arrested for sitting in the white section of the Roseland Theater in New Glasgow in Nova Scotia. So many of the same histories. Um, so policing has also accompanied that. So in Canada, we actually, the history of Canada is that Canada looked at the United States and essentially said, we don't want black people here. So we won't have the problems that the U.S. has and we blocked migration. So if you ever thought about it, why didn't black people go en masse up to Canada, um, you know, during Jim Crow? And the answer is because we closed our borders. So Canada had whites only migration until the 1960s. A small amount of Caribbean people were allowed in in the 1950s as nurses and doctors. And those black women were virginity checked 
Um, so there was a lot of surveillance and policing of migration as well. Uh, of course, there's also the historical genocide against Indigenous peoples that has existed since the beginning of so-called Canada, something that Canada is in vast denial about. And one of our major police forces, the RCMP, which is often a symbol of Canada, like the Mountie always gets their man, you know. Oh, um, I know there's like commercials that will show like, oh, the RCMP, like, don't even have guns. That's not true. You know, like the RCMP are an extremely violent police force. They were originally called the Northwest Mounted Police, and they were there to commit genocide upon Indigenous people as they pushed the boundaries of Canada. They also were responsible for um, putting Indigenous kids in residential schools and returning them home so when the children tried to escape, they would return them to the school. So they have an extremely anti-Indigenous history and they have a contemporary history of violence. In fact, police killings in Canada, there was more than ever in 2022. And the vast majority of those killings are, of course, Indigenous people and Black people. So the police force that the report we're about to talk about is the RCMP. That's what they're addressing. Um, we also have municipal police forces. Uh, many provinces have provincial police, and then the federal police force is the RCMP. Um, so you can see that many of the same histories exist in Canada, but the difference is we are in a constant denial about it. So Canada subsists on this mythology of the Underground Railroad, that we are the place that slaves came to escape and not that we had slavery. Slavery persisted in Canada for 250 years plus. Uh, Montreal was actually burned down by an enslaved woman named Angelique in the 18th century. Um, and so the, it's a myth that you know Canada doesn't have anti-black racism, Canada didn't have slavery, prisons and policing are something that only exists in the United States and we're some kind of racial mecca. In fact, many of the same issues persist here and sometimes in some ways worse because we don't even often have public discourse about it. As you were talking, this is a little bit of a digression. I was thinking, Elle, about, you know, when the orange dude was the president of this country, there was a big movement, like a big conversation about black folks um, wanting to migrate to Canada and Canada being like, absolutely not um, in, in terms of black folks going there. But that didn't get a whole bunch of news coverage, but it definitely was a place that black folks were looking to to escape the violence of here. Um, inside of that mythology of Canada being a safe place for folks of color. Yeah, we actually have a long uh, immigration history of putting billboards up in black countries and saying, don't come here. We also did that in the South um, during the Jim Crow period um, because at one point, Alberta advertised for farmers and then was shocked when all these black farmers showed up because they're like, cool, like we'll come from Oklahoma. And as a result, Canada blocked the border and actually sent agents down into the states and said, don't come here. Like we won't accept you. So we have a long, long history of like whites only border policing. All right. Uh, we're going to get to the report in a moment, but I think that we need to go to some of what led us here in addition to everything else that you just said. Can you walk us through the events of April 18th and 19th, 2020? What happened and where did police fail in keeping folks safe? Yeah, so this is a mass shooting. It's sometimes called the um, most violent mass shooting in Canadian history. I would be cautious on that because we know there's been massacres of Indigenous people. Um, so certainly more Indigenous people would have been killed by government agents than this day. But of extremely violent mass shooting, it was a white man named Gabriel Wartman with unsurprisingly a long history of domestic violence um, in a very rural region. So Portapique, which is a little bit outside of 
these won't mean anything to you outside of Churro, but this is a very, very rural region of the province. Um, so he had a, amassed a bunch of police cars. So he had painted an accurate police car. He also had amassed a bunch of weapons. He was a denturist. Um, he had had previous accusations and charges of assault and many red flags where people had uh, you know, called the police about his various behaviors, all of which were ignored. He, in fact, was quite chummy with a lot of the police. Um, and then beginning with a domestic violence incident. So um, it was, I believe, his his uh, domestic partner's birthday, I think. Um, anyway, so the, it started in an incident and that led to him um, trying to kill her. She fled to the woods and then he went out and shot uh, a number of people. Um, so he was able to drive through the night. So the police completely did not um, catch him. He was able to take back roads in a replica police car, which I think tells us something about when you choose to be violent and kill people, you do it dressed up as a cop. Like, I think we can mm. recognize what that means. Um, and they did not put out an emergency alert. So they knew this man, they had got the calls, you know, at one, two in the morning, they knew that this man had burned down houses, killed people, shot people, um, assaulted his domestic partner and they didn't alert the public. So people went out for walks in the morning and got killed by this man. Um, a, a woman who was pregnant was killed by this man. And all of those families have said our loved ones wouldn't have gone outside if you had even bothered to put out an alert system. And we have this province-wide alert system. Um, yeah, Elle, I, I want to stop you just right yeah. there really quickly because I think that that's important. Um, say more about what the alert system is and what it's supposed to do, but instead cops use social media? Just a tug on that thread a little yeah, bit Yeah, so we have, it comes to our phones. Um, so recently they used it for like an indigenous woman who the police was wrongly called about, right? Um, so, you know, we'll say stay inside, there's an active shooter. They didn't do that and instead they went on Twitter. And we're talking about rural regions where people may not have Twitter or even like solid internet. Um, so people just weren't aware. And the RCMP completely botched that. Then after, of course, the incident, when they held the first press conference, the only person they talked about dying was a police officer, an RCMP officer, Heidi Stevenson. And not until reporters asked did they even acknowledge that other people had been shot. Um, so they were very slow in giving the information to the public to keep the public safe and then essentially dishonest. Um, in subsequent press conferences about what had actually happened. So the families pushed for an inquiry, which the province was very reluctant to have. Eventually, they convened this inquiry. And of course, what it revealed, no surprise, is the vast failures of the RCMP, their failures to prevent this, um, the many red flags. For example, in early press conferences, they told us he wasn't known to the police. And we know that phrase from how it's used against black people when we're killed, right? When black people are victims of crime, they will talk about how somebody known to the police was shot. Um, when a white man is a perpetrator of a crime with previous convictions of assault, the police tell us that he was not known to the police. Um, so they had no way to prevent that. But of course, they knew many people had called in tips. People knew he had this police equipment and people had reported it. As I said, he had the red flag for many mass shooters of domestic violence, which people in his community knew about and that people um, were very terrified of him and people didn't necessarily know what to do. But there had been reports. Um, so there was quite a number of red flags. So, of course, um, the obvious point about policing is when we say things like defund the police, people say, well, you need the police to stop crime. What are you going to do when there's these major crimes? Now, here's this major incident, the kind of thing that people would say, I guess we need police for that. 
you know, a mass shooter and the police didn't do anything, not beforehand, not while it was happening and afterwards as well. In fact, they shot up a fire depot in another community. Um, so it really shows you that the one thing that people will say, you know, oh, do you want crime? Do you want mass murders? Do you want serial killers? That's what you want if you defund the police. Well, this is what happens. This is what police actually do. This is what they are. They were not capable of meeting the moment at all. And they did not keep communities safe. And as a result, people died. A lot of people died. And I think it's important, right, to to point out again that this happens in 2020. This is when the George Floyd rebellions are happening, not just in America, but across the country. And we're having this national conversation at a very elevated level about the, the usefulness of police. Talk about then that political context, this mass shooting, and the the how it elevated this conversation about maybe police are not the folks that should be the primary responders to community crisis. Yeah, so the mass shooting happened in April. We just passed the um, anniversary for it. Um, and then, of course, the end of May is when George Floyd uh, begins happening. So, I mean, what is interesting, particularly about this mass shooting um, is that, of course, this is in a white rural region. So you have white people that feel extremely failed by the police, rightly so, and are very critical of the police, rightly so. And then kind of by a month later, in tandem, you have Canada protesting in relation to the George Floyd protests, but with our own issues. So a black woman, a black indigenous woman named Regis Korczynski Paquette in Toronto, the police showed up to her apartment on essentially a wellness call and she ended up dying, falling from the balcony, 22 floors. Um, so that was a big issue. And then a indigenous woman, a Wet'suwet'en woman named Chantal Moore um, was shot in BC by the police. Then a Mi'kmaq man named Rodney Levi was shot. So we had a number of shootings of black indigenous people or killings of black and indigenous people at the same time. So people were joining in solidarity to the George Floyd protest, but because of issues that were happening, not just we were protesting that killing, we were saying, and it happens in Canada as well. So we went into this big conversation, as you know, happened around policing and defunding. And is there systemic racism in Canada? Because, of course, in Canada, we have to start with, is there even racism? Like, we can't even acknowledge it exists. Mm -hmm. uh, the person who was the super, um, superintendent, the head of the RCMP at the time, Brenda Lucky, said systemic racism did not exist in the RCMP. Again, a force formed to police and commit genocide against Indigenous people. Um, so, it kind of, you had that happening, like the, the global George Floyd protests. And at the same time, these people that normally perhaps would not be connected to those protests. I mean, a lot of white people in solidarity, but also experiencing um, the failures of policing. So what's been kind of interesting about the mass casualty report, which is the um, inquiry into policing, is the ways that um, I think race has been a dynamic there. So both obviously um, in the way that people are seeing how the things we were saying were true, right? So um, when you're black, obviously, and you talk about defunding the police or the police are corrupt or the police don't keep us safe, that always is treated as this extremely ridiculous and radical position. But then you had white people being like, our family members died because the police completely failed us. So, um, you know, that, that changed the dynamic in this sense. But then also because of racism, another dynamic was that we would have be, be saying these things and be told that we were cop haters and we were, you know, getting hate mail. But then a lot of these white right wing 
uh, tabloids would also be obsessively making money off this Porta Peak shooting. So they would be, I'm like, you guys have written more about the police than I could manage in a lifetime. And somehow you're still not cop haters. And I'm a violent cop hater because I say that we could shift money to the community. So we have seen all along from Gabriel Wortman being a white man. I almost misspoke and called him Gabriel Whiteman there. Um, you know, so this is very much about how this white man was immune from policing. When we pointed that there was a racial dynamic, that a black person or indigenous person would never have got to the point because they would have been arrested. People got very angry when we talked about this being white male violence and all of us got threats. And then people got very angry at us for talking about policing at the same time as white people were able to talk about policing. But then we've also seen in the report uh, really... In that sense, I don't like to use the word validation because people died and we don't get validated off people dying, right? Like that is an incredible violence and trauma. But the things that we were saying are very much contained in this report by these judges saying, um, actually, yes, we need to rethink how we do policing. We need to shift resources away from policing. Having resources into domestic violence and mental health and prevention and intervention would be more effective. So many of the things that black people have been saying for decades and either been ignored or been um, you know, explicitly hated for are folded into this report. Now, obviously, they don't call for like abolishing the police, but it's certainly a report that acknowledges that policing is not going to be the the solution to social problems that end up causing crime. Um, and that, in fact, we need to invest much more in everything else in community and disinvest from thinking that we can just pour money into policing. So it's a very interesting report. It also takes on things like um, how the police are trained. So for many, many years, we know that um, reformists have said, oh, the police just need better training. The police just need better training. And finally, in this report, they point out that the police are trained at this depot in Saskatchewan uh, where Louis Riel, a great Métis leader, so that's um, people of indigenous and um, European descent, so French um, descent and then indigenous descent on the prairies that were fighting a, a national, like for their own nation, I, I can't give a good description of Riel in a very short time, but he's a very um, important Métis uh, resistance leader who was murdered by the state at the same site, the RCMP depot, where they continue to train the cops today. So if that doesn't tell you something about policing in Canada, I don't know what does. And the report actually raises this. So it raises a lot of good issues. Um, about how, no, we can't keep giving these people more weapons. No, we can't keep just giving them no, more money. You know, they had all the resources in the world and they couldn't even put out an alert. They couldn't, they got on Twitter. You know, like there's, there's so many problems with how the police work. So while it stops short of, I think, obviously the most robust critiques we've made, I think it is in that sense, really recognizing that these things that black people have been talking about, we were never crazy. We were never being ridiculous. We know the police don't work and keep, keep our communities safe. We know the kind of things that we can do when we put money into community on such a small scale. And so we do see those ideas reflected. Okay, Elsa, the, the report has been, been released. It's out in the world. Um, what happens next? I mean, this report was put together by a, a commission. What actual power do they have to implement its recommendations? And I'm wondering about your prime minister um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and how he's responding to all of this. Well, our useless prime minister who once wore blackface and got reelected after, I'm sure you know about that. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't, Prime Minister Trudeau was found to have all these pictures of blackface um, and then won an election only months later. Um, so obviously he 
you know, like, for example, he was asked, would you close the RCMP depot? And his response was that many fine officers have been trained there for generations. So I think that um, in Canada, as in, I'm sure, the United States, um, there's a lot of lip service. So post-2020, of course, there was a lot of lip service from our police services about acknowledging anti-Black racism and systemic racism exists. And, you know, every single institution, and we got all these Black justice strategies and, oh, we're going to address these disparities. And of course, nothing's happened. You know, we're three years later, and I'm sure it's happened in the U.S. too, this great moment of mass mobilization has really been frittered away. Um in Canada in particular, because we're a smaller community, they're able to, um, you know, have gatekeepers from our communities that basically prevent grassroots action and then just get grants and money and use them to do nothing. Um, so we know the lesson of 2020 and the lesson of many generations before that is the government will always use these crisis moments just to dampen us down and to make small gestures towards reform. So I don't really believe the government's going to, um, you know, disinvest money from the RCMP or even particularly do anything to change how the RCMP operates because they didn't change it when indigenous people were killed. They haven't changed it when black people are killed. And I doubt they'll even change it when white people are killed. Um, so, you know, um, there's no will in Canada to do anything about these issues. Again, partially because we aren't even acknowledging that they exist for the most part. Um, so I wouldn't think that the government has a particular will to really address this. I do think, though, that there's something going on that the author Desmond Cole, who wrote a wonderful book, um, The Skin We're In, A Year of Black Power and Resistance in Canada. So um, people should pick up that book. But he's called this moment what he calls the white crisis in policing. So the idea that many of the things that black and indigenous people have been saying for generations, white people are beginning to see and accept an experience in many ways. And so I think the shift will be on that side. If more and more, um, you know, white middle-class people become critical of the police, that's where the changes are. So, um, you know, in that sense, we have to keep resisting. We come from a community of deep resistance. We have hundreds of years of black resistance in my province. We have continued to fight those battles. Um, our communities have been destroyed. We've fought, you know, we've had police in our communities for generations and we've continued to fight. We had to fight street checks. We had to fight all kinds of things. So um, we continue to do that in solidarity with indigenous people. And I think what's changing is more members of the public are beginning to acknowledge that the truth of this, and we have to keep building that solidarity in this fight, but it's a long road and it's not going to change with one report. And unfortunately people will continue to die. Um, the RCMP have continued to kill black and indigenous people. And as I said, we went on to have the deadliest year on record in policing in 2022, um, post George Floyd, with no media attention in Canada at all. Nobody even knows or acknowledges that. And the thing that got attention was that there was a couple of police officers who were killed. And of course that has been used to re-entrench the police. That, um, so we're also, which is I know the same thing in the States where there's a propaganda that defunding has caused more crime. Like we didn't have any defunding. No one got defunding. The, right. the Toronto police got $50 million more in their budget. Our police got more in their budget. Every single police force across the country got vast increases to their budget. And the myth is, oh, because of defunding, there's more crime. And that's not true. Like, so there's lies about the crime statistics, lies about policing. And this is now the rhetoric, right? That these crazy activists defunded the police. And now look at all the homelessness and drug addiction, which of course is not caused by defunding the police, which weren't defunding. It's caused by um, the actual crisis that we're experiencing with inflation. And the very fact 
that we don't have any social services. We're in healthcare crisis. We're in a housing crisis. We're at like 99 plus percent occupancy. People are losing their homes. People are losing their jobs. We're still having the effects of the pandemic. Uh, there's a mental health crisis. And all of that is leading to an increased death by toxic supply crisis, an increased unhoused crisis. And then the myth is that, oh, you know, we cause defunding. So we're in a huge backlash to defunding right now. And I'm sure that's the same in the U.S. Um, we have a huge amount of people wanting the police to clear homeless camps and, you know, uh, commit drug users involuntarily and put people in prison. So there's a, a very, very conservative backlash to so-called wokeness going on right now. Um, and, you know, everything that makes common sense is woke. And so we're, we're experiencing that as well. So I, people actually called this report a woke report, a report done by like former justices. You know, like these are like white judges and people are like, oh, the woke infected this report. Um, interestingly, a lot of the right wing was very into this story, as I said, and they would every week have like conspiracy stories about the RCMP. But then the report comes out and it's like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't give the RCMP all this money. And then they're like, woke. So it just shows the irrationality of the people that you're dealing with, because policing isn't about policing. It has nothing to do with the evidence of policing. It has nothing to do with the actual facts around policing. It has to do that people are invested in anti-blackness, anti-indigeneity and authority. And the police represent that white male authority to them. And so they will cling to that whether or not the facts bear out. They don't care that the police aren't the most effective way to deal with mental health. They don't care that using civilian interventions is cheaper and more effective. They don't care that prisons don't work to reduce domestic violence and that we can, in fact, release people from prison as we did in COVID, where 41% of our provincial prisoners were released more cheaply and safely. Um, th those are all facts. But this isn't a discourse about facts. It's a discourse about power. It's a discourse about race. It's a discourse about class and property. And it's about upholding those values at the cost of even the lives of now um, innocent white people whose lives were also destroyed because we would rather invest in narratives of policing than do what's right for communities. And I think this moment has really showed that as well. All right, Elle Jones, I've got to leave it there. Thank you so much for your work and for joining us uh, this morning. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>